Hi, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Up on our site, the Ringer has just published their first ever fantasy football rankings. Our NFL experts, Danny Kelly, Robert Mays, Danny Heifetz, and more, rank and analyze the top 150 players in 2019 with printable and mobile cheat sheets to take with you wherever you're drafting. To check out our rankings and for more preseason coverage, listen to the Fantasy Football Podcast or head over to theringer.com. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Back to our regularly scheduled programming with the interview I did with Dr. Jim Kim, former president of the World Bank, and he was one of the handful of people that co-founded the great, great organization, Partners in Health. He was also the president of Dartmouth College. He is one of the most important figures in my life, and whether he knows it or not, he altered the trajectory. I met him at one of the lowest points in my life, and he has stayed with me ever since and been a big brother. It's an informal way of calling him Hyung. We talk about it in the podcast when he's really sort of Hyungnim or something like that, but I never thought I'd have someone like him looking out for me like a guardian angel. So I love you, Jim Kim. Thank you so much. And if you don't know much about him, read about Dr. Jim. There's a whole treasure trove of papers and articles about the great work he's done throughout his life and his career. And one of the great things about the world today in a world that has a lot of shitty things going on in it is that there is greater awareness, particularly for Asian Americans. It's like better to be Asian than ever before. And I think Dr. Jim Kim is a real sort of trailblazer in being a first generation Asian American growing up in Iowa of all places. And then having this extraordinary life of sort of being an anthropologist and really taking an understanding of Asian American, specifically Korean culture, to a whole different level and understanding the, the difficulties of being born into a disadvantaged environment, whether it's your skin color or your economics, like you shouldn't be born at a disadvantage simply because of who you are. And he's dedicated his life to eradicating poverty. And it's very hard to see what he's doing as anything but amazing. And I wish him nothing but the best. I'm, again, so grateful he's in my life. And I learned so much in this podcast. I didn't want to do a My Opinion as Fact because I wanted to get right into this podcast with Dr. Jim Kim. It's important. I think if you grew up as an Asian American, you should listen to this because you're listening to literally one of the the OGs. And... uh I'm very, very happy to know him and uh, walk, try to follow his footsteps. So here you go. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jim. I'm with my friend, Dr. Jim Kim, former president of the World Bank. That just, when did that stop? Six months ago, February 1st of this year. So you're a civilian again. <laughs> I'm a civilian again. No, no more security guards, no more... Uh, Traveling all over the world for these uh, crazy meetings. And you traveled literally? Oh, all the time. And you, how long were you at the World Bank? <clears throat> Six and a half years. I had three and a half more years to go, but uh, I retired early because I'm, uh, I'm doing something else now. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do something similar, which is building infrastructure like, you know, airports and roads and really fundamental things, energy that people need to, to survive. 
I'd been saying forever that, you know, the private sector has to get involved. There's not enough money in the foreign aid world to build these basic things that everybody needs. But it wasn't happening. So I decided I'd, I'd, I'd do it on my own. <laughs> um, and when I first met you, you weren't the president of the World Bank. You were the president of Dartmouth yeah. College. Can I tell a story? Yeah, please. So one of the things that my board members told me, I mean, your, your buddy, Bill Hellman, he said, you know, one of the perks of being president of Dartmouth is that you can meet anyone you want. And I had just read your Saturday, well, no, your, um, the New Yorker piece, right, on, on you. And I said to Bill, I said, there's only one person I want to meet. And that's Dave Chang. <laughs> and he said, all right, we'll work on it. And they came back and said, you know, we, we couldn't reach him somehow. We went, we went through the restaurant. We could, apparently lots of people want to meet him. So it just, just didn't work out. And then uh, uh, I was invited to the state dinner at the White House for the president of Korea, Lee Myung-bak at the time. And I walked in and in one of the side rooms, before you go upstairs to the part of where, the, where the, they were having the dinner, I saw you, right? And I walked up and I said, hey, are you Dave Chang? I don't think you had any idea who I was. I had no idea. But your mother knew who I was. <laughs> <laughs> and your mother was your date. And then when I told you, um, you said, oh yeah, I've got a lot of folks who work for me who are like connected to Dartmouth. And so then we started talking and then I did an event at Momofuku with some of the board members and it started from there, and we we started an intense conversation that uh, that's been going on ever since. That was a very surreal day, <laughs> because um, I guess the backdrop to that is you you probably were used to going to the White House and stuff because I mean Obama uh, elected you to the World right, Bank, right? Yeah. So you were boys. Well, he he was he nominated me. Nominated, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nominated. I had no idea what was going on. I, I can tell you what happened. I had just flown to Australia. I was spending a lot of time in Australia then. And I just got off a 23-hour flight, two connections to get to Sydney. And right when I turned my phone on, it was an email being, um, hey, Dave, we just got a, a phone call and an email and then another email because you didn't respond in a day. There's a state dinner in uh, 72 hours, basically. And I was like, wait, this must be a mistake. What are they doing? <laughs> and it's the president of uh, South Korea having a state dinner at the White House. And I was like, oh, man, like, I just got, I can't go to this. And I said, like, no, I can't go. And everyone was like, you have to go. You have to go to the state dinner. So I got on a plane, and it was a black tie affair. And I don't even know how it all happened, but I think they got, like, a rent-a-tux. And next thing I know, I'm like, mom, you want to come to the White House? <laughs> So I literally got on a plane. You lose two days. And I got off the plane basically to D.C. And first thing I see right when I enter the sort of compound of the White House was a room full of like maybe like 300 Korean people. Yeah. And I get nervous. <laughs> when there's more than like eight Koreans or Asian people in a room, I start to sweat. <laughs> I was like, what did I get myself into? And I'm in a black tie. This is maybe potential nightmare of a night. Yeah. And then I look to my right and you come up to me and I'm expecting, <laughs> this is how I can be like pretty ignorant myself. I was like, I was expecting someone speaking English like my dad, broken English. And I was like, whoa, this fucking guy's English is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the, the really cool part was when I got to know your dad. Which was crazy. Right, which is crazy. Because I got to know your dad, and we uh, 
the Chang family, and we, we can talk about your uh, uh, love and currently hate affair with the, the game of golf. But yes. your dad <laughs> and I, your dad and I, got to play golf together because it turned out that your dad and my dad grew up about twenty miles apart from each other in North Korea. And my dad was born in 1929. Your dad was a little younger than that, I think, but yeah. around then. And so uh, the, the, it's, it was just wild because it felt like, oh, my God. My dad had a strong North Korean accent. You could just tell where he was from. And the connection was just so wild. Here you were. <laughs> and, and the reason I wanted to meet you, though, was that the uh, New Yorker article, I just thought, oh, my God, this guy's so intense. He's so committed to excellence. It's just like the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I had uh, watched the movie uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, That's right. right? And I thought, but we have our own, you know, sort of Korean American Jiro, man. No, this no, is no, amazing. no. That is that is a wrong comparison. <laughs> no, no. That, <laughs> so, so it was uh, you know, there was all these people that they said, "Oh, yeah, but we know everybody. We can I said, "Look, I want to meet Dave Chang cuz I want to meet this guy." And I couldn't so believe that you nowhere. wanted to meet me. Absolutely. That was just weird. And I was like, most people when they read that New Yorker piece, they're sort of like shocked cuz I come across as a crazy crazy just a a crazy and I, I haven't read it in a long time cuz I don't want to read it because the last time I looked at it Probably when it came out, I was like, man, I'm I'm a crazy person. Well, you dropped so many F-bombs. I broke the record. You dropped so many F-bombs, and you showed the great grammatical flexibility of the F-word. You know, yeah. you used it in every form. Yep, yep. I thought I thought it was so cool that you did that. <laughs> and, and it's like, this guy's real. This it's guy, embarrassing, Alice, though. Alice Waters is like, hey, you know, we were really worried about Dave for a while. You know, we were really worried about him being too intense. <laughs> the holes in the wall in the kitchen where you got frustrated. Hey, I thought... Man, this is the kind of commitment to excellence that's required in life to do what I was doing, which was, I mean, at the time I was president of university, but before that I spent all my time trying to deliver healthcare to the poorest places in the world. And it was never easy. It was, you know, we did not approach it as a form of charity. We, we approached it almost as if it was a war. Everyone was trying to say, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't treat HIV, you can't treat TB. And we took it on, I hope, with the same kind of intensity that you took on uh, your cooking, and so I, I thought, wow, this is this is the one guy. The You're one probably guy the only meet. person that looked at the time of my life as a positive. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have to tell you, the first time I met Grace, right? So that when I met Grace, uh, uh, we went to a concert together, That's right. right? And she asked me the same question. I said. Why did you want to meet Dave of all people? <laughs> so your, your own wife was wondering, and I, you know, at where I did my training at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, there was a my residency director, wonderful guy named Marshall Wolf. He used to quote Maimonides and Spinoza all the time. Right? And one of the great quotes was, "All things excellent are difficult and rare." Right? And so, your commitment to excellence was like, okay, everyone's got to see this. Everyone has to know. And it's just the same reason why I recommend Jiro Dreams of Sushi to everybody, right? You, you have to ask yourself, how much do I care? How much do I really, really care about getting the best possible outcome here? And for me, it was, how much do I care about, you know, providing health care to poor people? Because if you do, if you care enough, life is going to be tumultuous. Life is going to have tons of ups and downs. <laughs> you know, my career has been full of them. Wow. I can't, I mean, it's just. When people find out that we know each other and you're really in my life, it, it's always like a shock to people. And it's still a shock to me because I still, when you're just talking about all of this stuff and who who you are, what you've accomplished, the fact that you wouldn't know me and 
this deranged lunatic at age 30 that was in the New Yorker or something that he wanted to meet is still something <laughs> oh, that's so I weird know. to me. But, so, you know, so I, I listened to some of your previous podcasts, mm. right? And you and you and Randall Park, who I, who I love watching, were, were talking about how, you know, we were always going to do something else. And these guys who went into medicine and law. And, like, I was that horrible person who did all these things that Korean parents beat up their own children Whoa, about. Wait, right? wait, 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 wait. Just to back up. So I mean, like, you know, doing all the right things, and people have thought of me that way. Going back to the White House story, we wound up, I didn't talk to anyone, because it seemed like they invited any Korean person that was moderately successful. <laughs> and they could only scrounge about 300 of us. The Harold and Kumar dude, right? Yeah. John Cho was John, there. John was there. Um, yeah. Basically, anyone that spoke English, <laughs> an American or not, I just was funny when you looked at the room, and it was yeah. a blast. Janelle Monet played. It was amazing. And I still couldn't believe that I was there. But the most amazing thing was the conversations I was having with you. And we hung out all night. And I got on a plane, went back to Australia. And we kept in touch after all that time. And, you know, the funny thing is, is I grew up trying really hard never to be the version of a Korean kid that I think that a lot of people hoped that I would become. Or I just didn't feel any sort of calling to that. And I especially hated the, the honorific system of having a young, which is like an older brother. And I was like, shit, I think after all these times we sort of kept in touch and you really became instrumental in my life in so many ways. I was like, shit, I think Jim Kim's become my young man. <laughs> and, and, and if you're not Korean, like, I don't know how you explain that. Well, how do you explain that? So young just is a, is a word for older brother. But you're only allowed to use the term young when you've become close enough so that, that you could use it. It's just an example. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon was my very, very close friend. We worked so closely together, right? But I could never call him young, right? He, he was, in a way, my, my older brother, but I had to be more formal with him. We spoke Korean with each other, and I called him Sanbenim. And Sanbenim literally means sort of the person who came before me who I honor, right? And I should be calling you that, technically. No, no, yes. no. no. You, you, <laughs> Young is, young is <laughs> but, perfectly okay. Just not Ajishi. Yeah, okay? no, not Ajishi. Uncle. Just don't go over your Ajishi's old man. <laughs> um, but I was like, wow, that's so funny to me. I've, I've been allergic to that idea the whole time. But I was like, wow, you came in a portion of my life that was in, I would say, pretty much turmoil. Yeah. That was, what date was that? It was October 13th, 2011. That was that long ago? Yeah, oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Imagine, right? And think of I think the best thing I did for you was introduce you to some people. Yes, right? you did. So, you know, Marshall Goldsmith, who became your coach, the most famous, you know, leadership coach in the world. He, well, I didn't know. You. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't know who that was. Uh, you still keep in touch with Marshall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bill Hellman, you know, great, great guy. Who's, so who Jim, Jim saw all the things that was going on in my life and all the problems, and he really did try to help me out. And uh, there was a lot of tough stuff going on, and I didn't think that there was any way out. And Jim just sort of made sure that there was contact and communicating and introduced me to Marshall. And he was your executive yeah, coach. He was my coach. Yeah. And I was not prepared for the Marshall Goldsmith challenge. <laughs> you know, I've been seeing like a psychiatrist and getting therapy, all of these things, but I was not ready for what you were introducing to me. I was just like, whatever, let's just do this and get it done. 
And I actually have never thanked you enough, right? <laughs> or, or even Marshall, and Marshall would be very happy to hear this. I'm very grateful and thankful for you doing that because I don't know where I'd be if that didn't happen. Huh. If I actually didn't get on that plane, yeah, right? <laughs> and all of these things were just sort of on a razor's edge of a decision. And I can't believe when I just think about it, I was like, wow. Because Marshall really, in his own way, made me grow up hmm. as a business person, <laughs> Right. And I don't know, what would you say Marshall's like, what he, what does he do? Cause he's not like a traditional business coach. When I was at Dartmouth, um, I met Marshall and Marshall was teaching at the Tuck School of Business. And Marshall has coached like all of the great CEOs. He's coached Alan Mulally when he was at Ford. He coached all the Walmart CEOs. And so he is the, the man in leadership coaching. And I asked him if he'd coach me. And he did, and you know, as uh, he usually charges a lot of money, just because that's that's what that's what the <laughs> folks in that world do. But he charged me nothing, and uh, he he continues to coach me today. And it's the most fundamental lesson in leadership, which is if you're not ready, if you don't have the humility to hear how people experience you right between your eyes, r- directly between your eyes, and then commit to humbly going forward, asking for help, and getting better then you're going to have trouble as a leader. And you've got to start with that humility to take the feedback, right? So the 360 session, there's a whole bunch of like really famous CEOs who've gone through the Marshall Goldsmith 360 session. And they all have, uh, you know, just these terrible stories about how unbelievably humiliating it was. Because when you hear it, Mar- Marshall has this wonderful way of getting information from people, either that, you know, you report to or that, that report to you. And he, he depersonalizes all of it. But he presents it to you in a way that you think, oh, my God, they weren't supposed to see that. I was thinking that, but nobody was supposed to see that. So you see directly how other people see you. And then you got to make the decision, am I going to get better or am I not going to get better? And if I'm going to get better, then it's going to require another act of humility. And it's uh, the process is made. You remember, right, Dave? You, you're not allowed to say no, but, or contradict him, right? Cursing's fine. Do, <laughs> yeah, cursing's <laughs> fine. But if you contradict him, because he says it's not about arguing with you. You're just going to have to listen. You know, you have to put money on the table, and then that money goes to your favorite charity, right? So uh, leadership is, uh, lots of people say stuff. Leadership's about humility. And I was, it was really interesting, your whole conversation with Pre Brown, a lot of it was about management leadership, right? Yeah. Because that's what happens. That, you know, what happens is the minute you step into this other role, it's all about people. It's all about how you manage people, how you talk to people, you know, how people respond to you. And I was like, you know, the early part of my career, I spent all my time trying to deliver these healthcare programs in, you know, the slums of Peru and Haiti and in the Russian prison system. That's what I was doing, just doing that stuff. But then as soon as you move from that, it's it's really about how you inspire and lead people. And you got to keep getting the feedback. That's just the hard part of it. You got to keep digging into the deepest depths of how you're feeling and then how that translates to other people. And that's the most difficult act of humility that I can imagine. It was very, very hard. <laughs> and like he was having, he was like your pro bono client. And then you asked Marshall and I was just shocked that any of this was happening and you worked very hard to make sure it happened. And I became his like next pro bono client because <laughs> <Yeah>. there's <laughs> no way I could have afforded Marshall. And I had no idea who he was. Yeah. And then you go to these meetings and you see all these men and women, titans of industry. I was like, what? And then you're in a room and you're like, what do you do? I was like, I own some restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> Jim's, you know, saving the poverty crisis in the world and 
it was funny to see almost every single person when you do these or you know you do these group dinners right. to have the same problems. Right. Right. Which was shocking. Yeah. And you know the the other problem is that when you're on top of an organization, the flow of information to you gets really really uh, you know cut off. You just don't hear honest feedback. And also there's nobody to really talk to about what I should do next. So that the groups that Marshall formed of you know CEOs who uh, have been coached by him you know, remember we we hosted some of them at the World Bank Group. It was great, uh, and that's still a community that I that I rely on today. It's uh, the, what's the right word? There's a lot of uh, sort of snake oil in in that whole world. Mm-hmm. Not with Marshall. I mean, Marshall is a totally different kind of approach to it altogether. I I try to explain to people what I learned from Marshall and when I could get his sort of ear, and it basically was things that I already knew about myself that I was a shitty communicator. I was not responsible enough for my actions, but there was a discrepancy between what I knew and what I acted upon. But just because I knew it didn't mean I did it. Mm. And most importantly, I learned I was a total fucking asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's really what Marshall does. He gets to these CEOs when no one ever says anything negative about, and he he has no problem telling you, people hate your guts. Well, he, he's, you know, the way the way Marshall would say it is he takes high-performing people and helps them perform at a much higher level. Right? Yes. You were pretty high-performing. <laughs> can I, let me just go back, though. There's a lot of talk about Korean parents. You've talked about it on, uh, on these podcasts as well. But I just want to say, I think Korean-American kids and Korean-American young people should give their parents a break, right? So what, what were they really saying? My dad said the same thing to me. You know, this is a story I've told many times, but... You know, I was really interested in politics. My mother was a philosopher. I was just, I remember watching the speeches of Martin Luther King. I mean, I'm that old. I mean, so so, so I, I saw that stuff. And so I was really interested in politics. And so my father was a dentist, my mother a philosopher, right? And the first semester that I came back from Brown, I transferred to Brown, so it was in my sophomore year. My dad said, so Jim, what are you going to study? And he expected biology or something like that. And I said, I'm going to study philosophy and political science. And I'm going to become a politician. And he literally pulled the car over to the side of the road and said, look, when you finish your residency, you can study anything you want, right? (laughs) Now, now, you know, uh, the funny thing is when I tell this story to an American audience, everybody cracks up. When I tell this story to an audience of older Korean Americans, nobody laughs, man. They just shake their heads and said he, he was right. Yeah. And he'd say things to me like, look. He was a waiter at Patricia Murphy's in New York City in the early 1950s, right? He came here. He was in dental school, but he didn't have any money. So he had to, he had to wait tables at night, right? And so he felt like, look, I know what this country's like. And he would, say, he would talk like this. Says, if you think that someone is going to pay you, a Chinaman, to listen to what you think about politics and philosophy, you're crazy. Go to medical school, get a degree. Then when you come out, you can do anything you want. And so- my father died fairly early when he was 57, but he saw me get into this MD-PhD program where I was going to study anthropology, right? And for him, he was so proud. He said, that's okay, because you're going to get your medical degree. You can literally do anything you want, but I don't want the world to be able to take stuff away from you, right? And so and why would they think that? Why would your parents think that? Because during the war, and, I, and I, I've, I'm in the process of a long process of writing a book about uh, the experience of our parents. And, uh, you know, they were both refugees and they were living in a time when anything could be taken away from them at any time. Mm-hmm. So the sense of 
do something stable that they can't take away from you. That's pretty real. And I, you know, you talk to many of my mentors at uh, Harvard Medical School were, were Jewish now in their 70s and 80s. And they said, look, that's exactly what our parents told us. Because they also felt that at any given time, anti-Semitism could raise its head and they can take everything away from you. So go and get something that no one can take away from you. So I, I just would say, I'm so glad that comedians are doing well now making fun of uh, Asian parents. But I have to, you know, 1955, uh, you know, 1952, 1955 was the post-war period. Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. They were so poor that the World Bank didn't give them a loan until 62, because up until 62, they said Korea is hopeless. There's no way that the Republic of Korea will ever be able to pay back a loan. They're too poor. They're too uneducated. It's only the agricultural area. And so you got to think about your parents from a mindset of a time when the country was so poor that it couldn't even get a World Bank loan. I think about this more now because I'm a dad, and I obviously have a at times a strained relationship with my old man because I've also entered the restaurant business, a business that he never wanted to be in. He wanted me to be a pro golfer, all these things. And I think now about, you know, unfavorable stories I have of my dad. Yeah. And a lot of which is stuff that I've talked to my shrink about over the years. And I've had harbored a lot of anger. I mean, I still do. But when I just sort of get to that edge of being just very, very upset, I always have to remind myself like a week later, I'm like, man, I didn't lose anyone to a war. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I can't even imagine. I never, and you know what I thought? I have never asked my dad what it was like to come out of the Korean War. Oh, yeah. Because I just can't do it because yeah. it would just be too much sorrow. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, man, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Your dad's a great man. How many restaurants did he own at one point? Like eight or nine restaurants I don't in Washington, D.C.? It was that many, but it was a lot of restaurants, right? And so here he was. Think about the problems he had getting raw materials, right? I mean, he probably had to negotiate everything that he was doing. He hustled as, his way. Yeah. And, and with people who didn't want him to be successful, right? With people who he was competing with. And then um, the car wash, right? He still goes out, I understand. And he still like washes car. Uh, maybe, maybe not now, but he did. <laughs> He's too old now, but. He did well. Right you know, well into his later years. And the experience was my, my, my mother was a, was a refugee and she lost her mother during the war. She was 13 and her, you know, her youngest sister was just a baby. And so they had to literally, you know, be taken in a truck to the Incheon Harbor and they went down to uh, Jeju-do to get away from the war. And my father escaped um, by himself at the age of 19, middle of the night, he knew one of the border crossing guards. So he, he came by himself uh, over the border and somehow got himself into dental school. There was only one <clears throat> dental school at the time, uh, Seoul National University Dental School. And those memories, I think he always feared, you know, that we weren't, we weren't experiencing enough hardship to be tough enough to survive in this world. You know, I, you, you guys talk about growing up in different parts. I, I, you know, from my perspective, David, you and Randall Park had it so easy because you grew up in cosmopolitan cities. I grew up in a small town in Iowa, right? And you can imagine, you know, that I used to tell people, well, so what was it like growing up in Iowa? Well, you know, my father was a dentist. My mother was educated. We were good students. I played football, basketball, that was my golf. Favorite, that's my right? favorite story. You were like, <laughs> I was a, would you? 
I was a quarterback point. of the football team. But <laughs> Korean but guy? What Korean year? Korean guy, quarterback of the football team, and uh, graduated in 1978. That's what school. I would tell everyone. I was right. like, did you know Dr. Kim right, but was not- a quarterback of the football team in Iowa? Okay, I wish I could like <laughs> take credit for it, but we had the longest losing streak in the nation. Doesn't matter. No, Doesn't matter. But did, Okay. <laughs> But you, you were serious. I mean, you were a serious football player, right? And I remember, I remember um, Thomas, right? I remember my, my older son when he was like 12 or 13, 13, he was playing on the football team. And it, because he didn't have a lot of the other skills, he was an offensive lineman, which you were, right? Yep. And you told him, try to go right before the quarterback says, hut, right? <laughs> so, so it's like you were sharing with him, even when he was 12 or 13, right? These little secrets. And you were you wanted to play college football, right? I mean, well, I, that was serious. Well, I was I I quit like day two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you were. You no, were. no, but that's just what you, I did. I just didn't play golf, and unexpectedly, I guess I got good at football. But I was also not good enough to be the next level. And well, I think well, you. What was your dream? You wanted to play uh, offensive line no, for Boston. No, College. no, 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 right, right, right. No, so no, no, no. What was that? My dream was I. I should have just become a football coach. <laughs> oh, I, I wish. I wish. I wish. I sort of worked for Bill Belichick. Huh. That would have been amazing. Yeah. That's what I dream about a lot. Still, hey, but well, I mean, you know, the the the, the commitment to athletes. <laughs> is, 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 is but the like, same thing. I'm glad. I just think that that was a part of my life, and I realized, oh, this is not something I can take that seriously. Yeah. Because of golf, I have always compared myself with a very real understanding of where I stand in the competitive landscape. Yeah. And I was like, this is just not going to be a long-term thing that yeah. I can learn. But, but what? You at like 10 or 11, you were one of the top golfers on the East Coast, right? Something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's serious level of golf, right? And, uh, and you know, now it's being eminently revealed that, that Koreans are genetically superior in golf, right? I mean, <laughs> so... <laughs> So, I mean, we're seeing it. We saw it with the, with the women Why golfers. Why are women golfers, Korean women golfers, so good and Korean men golfers always burn out or choke? But think of how many Korean men, male golfers now are out there. There's some great, I yeah. mean, it, but we're overrepresented I among talked the male to Sean, golfers. I as talked well, to right? Sean Foley, who's a golf coach and he was <laughs> yeah. one of the I told you this. He's yeah. like, <laughs> he said, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, right? But he's like, I don't know if a Korean man will ever win a major because of the hot. Ah, well, but there has. Why Yang, right? Won the PGA. So there's Did he win the PGA? Yes. Beat Tiger, man. Was that? Wait, sure? Why Yang beat Tiger, and he hit this unbelievable hybrid shot over a set of trees, and he won. I've already blocked this out of my memory. I know. Why Yang? You know, and why- When did this happen? I don't remember the year. It was some years ago, but it was Why Yang. And and, you know, think of the guys who've done the best career-wise. It's Why Yang and KJ Choi. Both of them were weightlifters, right? So- I've, uh, KJ hits it short though. KJ hits it short, but he is in such great shape. I've played golf twice. I, I know I know KJ, and I just love his story. So so listen, just to illustrate a little bit what that previous generation came from. So KJ right now, <clears throat> I think his official age is forty eight, but he's actually fifty. So he should play on the senior tour, and he's in better shape than anyone on the senior tour. But he told me this story. He said he was born and grew up on an island, and the family was so poor that they didn't go to register their, their three kids at the registry until the third was born. And then when they all went there, they all got the same birthday. <laughs> KJ was the oldest, right? And so he's tried to get a change so he could play on the senior tour. But that's, that's where he came from. And he was a weightlifter. I think it's just, you know, he's one of the most incredibly determined, disciplined people. That's why he's done as well as he has. Why Yang, also a weightlifter. I, you know, the difference between men and women, I, I, I don't know, right? Women just, Korean women just, they just crush. 
everyone. They're so good. Like that last tournament, I looked at the leaderboard. I was like, it was like seven Korean women. Yeah, yeah. And and you know the the broadcasters now, I'm amazed. They know how to pronounce all the names. They know the the individual patterns of all these Korean women golfers. I I don't know what it is, but I think by now. It's that with Teddy Park's victories, right? That that really set everybody off. She everybody, was like the Serena Williams she, for Korean women. Absolutely. And then they all thought that this was possible. And so now the junior system is pretty intense in Korea. And the way I look at it is, you know, the Korean educational system is is criticized everywhere because it's so hard. Mm. I mean, it's just so demanding. How is it different? So people, if people don't know. All right. So starting at about junior high, you go to school from seven in the morning till about eleven at night. Right, so you go and you have breakfast, you have lunch, you have dinner at school, and then you go to these hakbangs, these uh, after-school study centers, until eleven. And the only reason they stop at eleven is because it's a law that you can't teach classes after eleven o'clock in these study centers. Right, so it's miserable for Korean kids. If you ask any, you know, Korean junior high or high school kid if they like that system, they hate it. On the other hand, it teaches discipline and determination. There's all this great psychological literature that says willpower is like a muscle, right? That you can build it up over time. And so I, I think that just about all Korean kids develop this willpower just because the school system is so demanding. And so you see the K-pop guys. They're not like genetically better singers or better dancers. They just work their butts off. And in many ways, the golfers, the K-pop stars, those guys are the failures of the Korean system because right. the, the winners of the Korean system go to law school or medical school or, you know, become uh, government employees, things like that. Those are the people who are at the top of the hierarchy. And so they may have failed in the traditional academic sense, but they're taking this incredible determination and willpower and applying it to what they do, right? And again, Dave, that's what I think you did. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard, multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's Dave Chang Show is also brought to you by Discount Tire. When was the last time you thought about your tires? Tires are what makes a difference in how your car feels and drives. Since 1960, Discount Tire has been keeping customers safe by taking care of all your tire and wheel needs. With over 1,000 locations across 34 states, their main focus is your safety and the safety of everyone else on the road. Discount Tire provides tire rotations, balancing, free flat repairs, free air checks, and more. And because safety is so important, they provide free tire safety inspections. Discount Tire also has the lowest prices on the best and largest selection of tires and wheels. They'll even make personalized recommendations for you based on your zip code and driving preferences. Whether you need an air check or a set of tires and wheels, Discount Tire can help you get back on the road with peace of mind and change to spare. Visit Discount Tire to shop, research, and purchase your tires today. 
You can even make an appointment to skip the lines. That's DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire. They'll get you taken care of. And now, back to the show. You know, I have to say... You know, they say that the North Koreans have the hottest tempers, right? Yeah. So you, yeah. you, may, you may have inherited that from your... Uh, so again, uh, for a lot of from people the that region. are not Korean, they may not know. <laughs> they may not even know the difference in the regionality. So what is sort of the... I mean, so one, one of the things and many things I love about Dr. Kim is not only his sort of amazing accomplishments, but he knows so much about everything, particularly <laughs> about Korean culture. And he can explain it in a way that a dummy like me can understand. So... How can you explain the regional differences in Korea? Yeah. A united Korea. Well, so, you know, I, I actually, I should know this because I did a PhD <laughs> in anthropology and I studied Korean culture. So, so <laughs> it, it, and, and the reason I did it, you know, I graduated from college in 1982 and that was the height of identity politics, you know, Asian American identity, African American identity. Now it's part of the Asian American movement. And it was embarrassing to me that I couldn't speak Korean. Now, I came here when I was five years old. So I only spoke Korean up until the age of five. But my, both my parents had gone to school here. So they, they wanted us to switch quickly and assimilate. So they only spoke English to us. And so my older brother and my younger sister still don't speak any Korean. But I thought, I got to go back. I got to learn how to speak Korean. I mean, if I'm going to be down with my people, if I'm going to, you know, be a Asian American, Korean American, whatever, I need to learn how to speak the language, right? So, so I went back and, you know, most people resolve their Korean American identity crisis by going for a summer and going to Itaewon to the bars and, you know, uh, what I did. Take, take, yeah, take <laughs> a class or two. I had to get a friggin' PhD, right? <laughs> resolve my identity crisis. So, so I did it and I studied the Korean healthcare system. I, I learned the language again, right? And I found it to be incredibly, I mean, it, it's so now the way I look at it is, look, you know, learning a language is hard, but what the hell, all the, these worlds open up to you. And so when I was 24 years old, I only spoke one language. I was a typical American monolingual dude, right? And then after that, I learned Korean. And after that, I learned Spanish, right? And I've dabbled with other languages, French and Chinese. And, and it's, it's so important to be able to speak other languages. But anyway, the point is, when I went there, I thought, this is great. I'm going to learn Korean and I'm going to resolve my, I'm going to know what it means to be Korean. And the more the language you learn, the more you learn that there are nice people, fake people, assholes, or every kind of person in Korea. And you just realize, God, this is just humanity. This is mm. just humanity right in front of you. And you may think you know what's going on because you don't speak the language. But when you do, all this bowing and stuff, th- you know, there are ways that Koreans can make a bow, you know, look like a fing- middle finger, right? So if you bow a certain way, that's not quite the right way. It's the same as giving somebody the middle finger, right? So there's just all these subtleties in every culture of how you communicate. Now, regionally, the idea was that the Northerners were the sort of smart-ass, modernized people, and the Southerners were the the gentlemen and the ladies because there, there was it was the agriculture region. But you know, the economic reality of it was that when the 38th parallel was set, all of the mineral wealth, all of the industry was in the north. And the South was just the uh, agricultural area. So this is why everyone thought the South could never make it. And some of the stereotypes, and, you know, there may be some partial truth to it, is that uh, Northerners are really intense, have a really hot temper, and are even more prone to not work together well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. The Koreans will tell you all kinds of stories, but I think the most 
important insight that I gained. The, the, every time you learn a language, the things that you think are the clearest distinctions between one culture and another tend to melt away. So if you're an anthropologist doing your study, they say the most important thing is to take intense notes in the first three months that you're there. Because that's when you really see all the differences. And after three to six months, you don't see them anymore because they just become human beings. And you start seeing the individuals and, and the, the differences among the individuals are far more important than any particular cultural trait, right? So I've had this great experience of being able to dive into a bunch of different cultures where something that seems, oh my God, now this culture is really different because they do this, this, and this, it melts away. And you think, okay, these are human beings trying to do something, trying to get something, trying to accomplish something. And, uh, you know, I get it now. Another group of human beings like everybody else. Pretty cool. And our, our dads came from the same area. Yeah. I mean, my dad had a hot temper. I know your dad had a hot temper, right? It, it, <clears throat> yes. Very, very much, very much a hot temper. And his mother too, for sure. Um, but I just want to say, Dave, you know, um, I'm sure he's very proud of you now, right? He is. He, he didn't he want you to go into the restaurant business. No. But I think partly it's because- It just broke think him. Of, it just, broke yeah, him. Yeah, think about how hard it was for him to just get the best meats, get the best fruits. You know, it must well, have been a struggle cooked, every time. Like, I knew this pretty early on when I first moved to New York. He's like, I'm not, I can't visit you. He hated New York with the white hot heat because yeah. when he immigrated here, he literally has that sad story that so many immigrants do. He slept in movie theaters, saved enough money, and it was just hand to mouth like so many people today, but it left such a bad taste in his mouth because there's no good moments in New York City for him other than just like – Hard. It was very hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he learned a lot, but he just doesn't like New York. I just, whenever he's here, I can just sense that he's like, this is not a place that gives me happiness. You know, my dad, we lived on these stories of when he was a waiter at Patricia Murphy's. I don't even think it still exists. Definitely right? not. <laughs> but <clears throat> Patricia Murphy's was famous for their cheesecake. Does the name even? Mm -mm. No. All right. So it was apparently a famous restaurant. And um, they would give out popovers, and he became a waiter and was actually waiting tables. And he said that you could tell who the cheap and the and uh, not-so-cheap people were because the menu was expensive items at the top and the cheap things at the bottom. And they would watch the patrons come and sit down, and they would look at the ones who started from the bottom of the menu and went up, right? And all the waiters would fight not to have that table because they knew they don't get it. So this was like stuff that that really helped him learn what living in the United States uh, and, and being a you know being here was all about. I mean, how did you? I mean, your dad must have some crazy stories. Yeah, must have absolutely crazy stories. I mean, yeah. to be a Korean guy in the fifties yeah. in America. Yeah, I mean, so we, we were uh, you know I think my parents in 1952, 53, 54 is when they were here. My mother was uh, the top student at Kyunggi High School, you know, the big high school. So she got a scholarship to go to Moorhead State College in. Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee. My father just somehow learned English. I mean, there was no English teaching back then, but he learned English. And uh, uh, after dental school, he became the interpreter, uh, translator for American GI dentists. And they liked him, so they sent him to New York City to learn uh, periodontics, a particular, you know, uh, the diseases of the gum and the supporting structures. And so they met through friends in New York when there were probably three or 400 Koreans in all of the United States, wow. you know, just a you know, very small number of Koreans. There were a bunch in Hawaii, but in terms of students from Korea, there were, there were probably three or 400. They met, they married in New York City. My older brother was born in New York City 
And then they went back to Korea. And then my sister and I, my, I was born and then my sister was born. And then after about five years, they said it was, you know, post-war period. There were demonstrations every day. It was extremely unstable. It was a military uh, regime, you know, a Park Jung-hee's. And they just decided, look, we're not going to be able to provide opportunities for our kids as we want. And so through uh, friends, uh, you know, other dentist friends that my dad had, you know, we came and he came, he had to come back to the United States and do his dental education completely all over again, the last two years of it anyway, at Baylor Dental School. So we were in Dallas, Texas in 1965, right? At a time when, if you, if you remember, I mean, Dallas, Texas, you, you weren't, you weren't around then, Dave, but Dallas, Texas, 1965 was not a great place for people who look like you and me. Were you the only Korean people? Only Korean people. And, you know, so- for sure, uh, for sure. I only can be. And and my mother sent me to uh, a sort of nursery school. To, it was it was like a preschool, right? And the kids, uh, I'll never forget. The kids would come up to me, slap me across the face, and call me flat face. Right? Oh my God. Slap me across the face, right? And uh, my mother went and talked to the people who were running the the daycare center, and they said, "Oh, you're being too sensitive." Right? So. <laughs> You know, this is a good Christian community, right, in, in, in Dallas. So we moved to Iowa, of all places. And we moved to Iowa because my father said, you know, he wasn't sure whether white people would allow a Korean dentist to put his hands in their mouth. So he, want, he went to a place where the only dentist in town was retiring so he could take over practice where he was assured of patients, right? Korean trickery, very smart. <laughs> so, so, so we ended up, and I grew up, I grew up in Iowa, and, you know, it was— because my father was pretty prominent in town, but I mean, every day it's like karate chop, you know, and imagine football, Dave. I mean, how much smack is talked in the football field, right? I was the only one standing up and they could look in my face, right? So the linebackers were always saying, you effing chink, we're going to kill you. And it was just constant racial epithets. The worst it ever was, was we went to a small town in Iowa, Washington, Iowa. I'll say it on the air, Washington, Iowa. And there were two black guys and me on the basketball team. And the crowd went nuts. And it was the only time in my life that I was spit at. Right? I, I can, so I was called names a lot. Only time I was spit at was during a basketball game. Happy to tell you we kicked their ass in, in, during the game. But then my father said, this is too much. And so he and the father of one of the black basketball players, Gary Monroe, great basketball player, talked to the athletic director and said, hey, that was too much. And the athletic director said what? You're being too sensitive. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, and the reason I say it to you is that I would never, ever suggest that what I went through is even close to what African-Americans in, you know, the Deep South were going through at the same time or in the inner city. You know, this was right when uh, the civil rights movement was, was taking shape. So it was never like that because I was buffered socioeconomically. My father was a professional. My mother you know, had a PhD in philosophy. I was completely buffered. And so it didn't give me, I, I don't think it created any complexes with, within me, but I hope what it did was it gave me a sense of uh, compassion and being able to see what it means to have to take that just because of where you were born. And imagine if you had to take that and you were also poor and you also you know, couldn't afford food or couldn't go to school. That's the story with so many people in the world that what I decided was that's what I'm going to take on. And, and you know, these story, I tell these stories because that's, that was real back then. I hear it's a reality that's growing these days in the United States, but it was real. And, and to have that feeling 
that this is happening to you, not because of anything you did, but because of who you are, what you look like, etc. That's the most desperate feeling uh, in the world. And it's the sort of task of our times to get past that. How angry were you at that age? I think I was angry. I think I, I, I you know, I, I had some anger, but um, I also had a lot of ambition. It, the, the idea was, um, look, this happened to me. It was real. But if I spend all my time licking my wounds, right, then, you know, it's neither very compelling nor very, uh, uh, it's not a very strategic path to go down, right? And so I never used this other than a brief time when I was at, in, as an undergraduate as part of this Asian-American, African-American movement. You know, I, at, at Brown University, where I did the last two and a half years of my education, there was this place called the Third World Center, right? So young people don't even know what that means, Third World Center. They used to talk about a first world, a second world, and a third world. First world was Europe and America. Second world was sort of other countries that were emerging. And the third world was a world that was just so poor, so out of it, that it wasn't even close to the first or the second world. So we used to call it the third world center and, and would argue that, you know, that's what links everybody, African-American, Latino, you know, Asian-American. But I think I was like one of two or three Asian students who wanted to have anything to do with that, right? The other Asian students were saying, we want nothing to do with this idea that we have anything to do with African-Americans and Latinos. But for me, it was like, oh my God, these people, these people have had experiences that are closest to mine, right? But at the same time, and my mom and my dad would tell me, but look, it's different for you, right? You were buffered. You were buffered because your dad's a dentist, your mom's a philosopher, you had access to, you know, money, education, et cetera, more money than they did anyway. But um, that was the mo- one of the most exciting times in my, in my life. We'd do demonstrations on Parents' Day, right? <clears throat> All the African-American Latino students would wear black and we'd be marching. And I'd be like the only Asian dude and I had, had to go and find something black to wear and, and march with these guys. But it was so exciting because it felt like, hey, this is what it must have felt like to hang out with Martin Luther King. That you feel you're on the right side of uh, of history. Wow! You never told me any of this stuff. <laughs> Amazing. Because by by this time of the evening, Dave, we've usually had enough to drink. And eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we never we get to this part. <laughs> well, what I always wanted to ask is, how did you get to start Partners in Health? Yeah. And for those that <clears throat> don't know what Partners in Health is, it's one of the best organizations out there. Maybe what? the best at what it does. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, uh, Paul Farmer, my one of my closest friends, and he and I both were in the MD-PhD program in anthropology. And Paul grew up with um, a very iconoclastic father who raised them. Uh, in, they lived on boats. They lived in buses. I mean, they, he, he was uh, like a Robinson Crusoe kind of like, you know, adventurer type guy. Uh, really wonder, wonderful, committed teacher. But, you know, they grew up living on a bus, right? And so Paul came from a, you know that background and then was such a brilliant student at Duke that he you know, anything he did was easy for him academically. So we met at Harvard and he had uh, gone to Haiti and uh, was uh, he went to Haiti because he worked in a clinic at Duke and there were Haitian refugees there and he just couldn't believe how poor they were and how poor the country was. So he started working in Haiti, and, he, and Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, we started talking soon after I got back from Korea, because I, I, I got back from Korea having done my PhD, thinking that you know, in the in the great tradition of identity politics, that they would Korea would re-embrace me and say, "Oh yeah, this is so great that you've come back." 
you know, you can play an important role for the, you know, growth and development of Korea. Nah, they, 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 they had no use for me. I was pretty useless in Korea. <laughs> and so I had to think, okay, so if Korea is not where I'm going to sort of work out all these great social justice ideas, where is it going to be? And my first trip to Haiti blew me away. I mean, it was, what year is this? This is 1988, right? Place is so incredibly poor. I mean, it's so poor that the people cut down trees to make charcoal. And so not only is it poor, but there's no topsoil because all when you cut down all the trees, all the topsoil washes away. And so um, uh, he said to me, look, you know, you can look at, and, and we were at the time, we were reading Marx and Weber and, and, and reading all the latest uh, thinkers at the time, people like Pierre Bourdieu and Baudrillard, these great French intellectuals. We were reading all these great thinkers. And uh, Paul just said, you know, I just, I don't think that, there's any uh, philosophical approach that's better than what the Catholic priests in Latin America have come up with, hmm. this notion of a preferential option for the poor. And we have, we have people of every religious background inside Partners in Health, but the basic idea was, if any of these great moral leaders, Jesus or whoever, were here today, where would they be? Would they be you know, sitting with the generals in Latin America? No, they'd be with the poorest of the poor. And so that's what the role of, in this case, the Catholic Church, that's what we should do. And when they did that, they, they, they got killed. They literally got killed. They, they, they were, you know, the priests in El Salvador were literally murdered because they stood with the poorest of the poor. So, you know, Paul and I came up with this idea, and along with Ophelia Dahl. I mean, Ophelia Dahl, her father was the author Roald Dahl. Oh, right? my goodness. And, and Ophelia, Ophelia, Paul, Todd McCormick, Tom White, the five of us started this organization. And uh, the idea was that that's what we were going to do. We, you know, we were never going to get much money. We were always going to be on the losing end, but we were going to we were going to stay with the poorest of the poor in Haiti. And then this just crazy thing started happening. Um, we found some donors who gave us money. You know, President Bush, President Bush's role in the history of Africa is just far more profound than anyone realizes. When he decided to treat people in Africa with HIV, to have a Republican president do that just changed the world for for all of us. And so uh, now, Partners in Health is a huge organization, more than 100 million a year, working in five continents and uh, providing, doing the same thing, providing outstanding healthcare in the poorest areas. We're talking about Liberia, Sierra Leone, Haiti still, the prisons of Russia, um, the slums of Lima, Peru. And, and the basic idea was that we will not accept the notion that poor people get poor quality care, and that anything we provide them, they should be grateful for. And we're only going to do things that are, you know, by our definition, cost-effective. So we're doing cancer care, surgical care in, you know, in places like Rwanda, right? So uh, the idea is still there. The idea is is still completely relevant. And and I'm, I'm now back on the board of Partners in Health, and we're going to continue to try to push the envelope. It goes back to the story of when my parents were here. The reason, when they went back in 1960, uh, 1958, what had happened to them was they saw what life was like in New York. So when they went back to Korea, their aspirations their, for their children and for themselves had gone up. It was inevitable, right? And so they just, they thought, you know, yes, this is our country, but we've seen what life can be like and we want to provide our children with the opportunity. That's what your mom and dad did. I mean, that's really, all the suffering they went through is because you guys could have this opportunity. Now, what's happening in the world today is once everyone gets access to broadband and a smartphone, that process of having your aspirations raised is going to happen to everybody in the world, right? And so this is, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing now, 
because I needed to move more quickly in building infrastructure. And in terms of healthcare, the disadvantages that people face because they don't have good education or good healthcare are so profound that there has to be a revolution in the quality of healthcare and education we provide. Partners in Health does that in the area of healthcare. We have to also do it in education because what's going to happen is if everyone's aspirations are raised, but then they see that just because of the accident of their birth, their opportunities are cut off, people are going to get very unhappy. And I've watched that with my own eyes at the World Bank. Countries go down the path of fragility, conflict, violence, and eventually migration. They want to go where there are more opportunities. And that's how I, that's why I pulled you into the World Bank, David. I mean, people don't know that you used to come to the World Bank and we used to talk about how are we going to feed everybody? I mean, what, what do we need to do? Uh, and can we get chefs involved in feeding everybody, right? And the only problem with that was that you guys are friends in a way, but you don't work and play well together because it's, it's, it was hard to get a whole bunch of chefs to do anything like that together. Uh, but they're still working on it uh, at the World Bank Group because we, when uh, programs did things like train chefs in poor communities in Brazil, what happened was that the nutritional status of the entire community got better because the understanding of how to handle food and how to turn food, uh, you know, the, the 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 plants and grains and whatever into into food, that had an impact on the whole community, right? All this to say that there are lots of just incredibly urgent problems we're facing. But probably the biggest problem, uh, the, the biggest potential explosion is, you know, universal broadband when? 2025, maybe? 2030? Everyone's going to have broadband. There'll be new technologies. That, that The market forces are driving it so quickly. And then probably by that time, everyone will at least have access to a smartphone if they don't have their own. And at that moment, aspirations will rise all over the world. And the rest of us have to just do everything we can to try to help people feel that at least they have a chance. That's what they want. I mean, I, they want, uh, of course, a better life. But if they feel that they're left out just because of the accident of their birth, I think we're going to have a lot of instability in the world. That's well, kind of heavy for this Yeah, podcast, it is. No, but, but it's I mean, good. Yeah. But like instability. It's, it's I do what I do. <laughs> instability how? Because how is that going to sort of uh, manifest itself, right? Well, so if you look at Tahir Square, you know, in Egypt, when, when the, the so-called Arab Spring, right? That was started by a whole bunch of young people who'd gotten their college degrees, right? And because Egypt, you know, Egypt put a lot of people in universities, you know, partly as a way of, uh, you know, placating them, right? But they didn't have the resources to teach you know, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And so there's a lot of folks who graduate with degrees in Latin and Greek. And because of that, and philosophy, and, and because of that, what they could do really well was tweet. What they could do really well was communicate, you know, write newspapers, but they couldn't participate uh, in the, you know, the emerging economy of the future. And so that sense that, well, I went to college, you know, I had all these opportunities and I got no prospects. That led to the Arab Spring. And I think you're going to see those kinds of Arab Springs everywhere because it was a Twitter movement. I mean, it was a Twitter Facebook movement. It, they all had access to social media, and that's how they were communicating in that kind of uprising. And those things are barely on the surface in country after country in the world. And so the great uh, social projects of our time, you know, communism, uh, socialism, in which large, huge countries, China, Vietnam, others, tried to equalize everybody's outcome, right? But, you know, you, you go to China today, and they'll tell you, you know, Equalizing outcomes just didn't work out well, 
right? We just, we just didn't, you know, 70% of the people in China in 1990 were living in extreme poverty, right? And so they realized after some crises in, in China that they had to open up the markets, right? And so uh, they started realizing that, um, you know, what force will be powerful enough for us to lift people out of poverty more quickly? And so they embraced the market, not completely, of course, but they did it in a way that they lifted 800 million people out of poverty, right? And it's just like the, that, that's the most extraordinary story uh, in human history. Before we go on, let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Square. Paying your employees is an important part of running a business. With Square Payroll, businesses can pay their W-2 employees and 1099 contractors online in just a few clicks. Square Payroll is built for flexibility. So whether you're running payroll for the first time or switching from another provider, they've got you covered. I can't imagine doing payroll right now. When I first started Momofuku, it was a nightmare. And I'm pretty sure that if Square Payroll was available in 2004, it would be a total breeze because I just think it's so important to have payroll taken care of if you're a small business, not just a small restaurant. You can seamlessly import time cards from the Square Point of Sale app or other time card partners instead of having to add hours manually. And that's a big advantage because guess what? People forget to check in, they forget to clock out, and to fix that is a pain in the butt. Square Payroll even helps calculate and pay out credit card tips. They also take care of all annual quarterly payroll tax withholdings, payments, and filings at no extra cost. Getting started is easy. Just enter your company's basic info, add your team's members' information, and Square Payroll will handle the rest. Their fair and flexible pricing scales with your business. Square Payroll costs just $29 per month, plus $5 per employee per month. Square Payroll also offers benefits like health insurance, 401k, workers' comp, and pre-tax spending. Visit square.com slash go slash Chang to get three free months of Square Payroll. That's square.com slash go slash Chang for three months free. And now, back to the show. I have so many questions. Uh, I'm traveling a lot more uh, for TV, and I think I've always traveled, but now I'm looking at it in a different light. And this year, I was able to go to Turkey. I was able to go to Cambodia, amongst many other places. And the thing that I kept on thinking about was sort of what you said earlier about when you understand the Korean language, we're all the same. Yeah, yeah. And going through these towns, these villages, the difference that I saw in some of these countries and cities was that people were fully aware that no matter what they did in their life, nothing was going to change for them. (laughs) And it broke me. Yeah. It totally, Cambodia just, I lost my mind. I just. It's a tough place. Yeah. It fucked me up yeah, in a way a really that I was literally place. apocalypse now. I was like, I can't, yeah. I don't know what's going on anymore. Yeah. yeah. Because I just was like, what do you do? What do you do? And then you, you have China's influence. I was like, oh my God, they're getting fucked again. <laughs> this is just so sad. How do you do what? And this is like, makes me wonder what the, what the hell am I even doing? <laughs> you know, when you see that, it's really hard to make sense of anything. And then I was like, I have nothing to complain about. After I left Cambodia, I was like, I have nothing to complain about ever again. Because if they can be happy, mm-hmm. and I was meeting all these people, they're like, yeah, it's been really bad. <laughs> yeah. As yeah. bad as it can oh, be. Yeah. 
but like landmines, you know, I mean, just the, the simple stuff that came, came from history, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, the, I, um, but like, how do you deal with that, with all that you've seen and still have hope? Yeah. Just, you know, um, the one thing that I said over and over again while I was at the World Bank and, and, uh, not too long into my tenure, uh, one of the vice presidents put a little report on my, uh, on my desk and it was a report uh, from Korea in the late 1950s, right? And it basically called Korea basket case. It said, this country will never develop. That without tons of foreign assistance, these folks are in big, big trouble. We can't approve a loan right now because I'll never be able to pay it back, right? So, you know, we come from a country that was labeled a basket case not too long ago, right? So um, uh, the, the way I think about it is, okay, well, you know, uh, you know, if we were if we we're going to build infrastructure somewhere, Cambodia might not be the first place we go. But who knows, man? I mean, you never you never know what's going to happen over time. Something could happen uh, that would then you know uh, get the wheels moving. So you, the one thing that I've learned is you just can't give up on any country, any people. It just it's uh, it's it's it it you know that is the worst form of racism to think that you know what an entire country's destiny is going to be like. Who knows? I mean, they're, they're, you know, who knows you know, way, the ways that the, uh, you know, the global economy is going to go? We just can't give up on anybody. Keep going back there. Start, you know, start, start restaurants, whatever. Well, that's, yeah. that's what I've been trying to tell people. I was like, hey, man, I don't think you should go to uh, Thailand, Vietnam. Like, no one wants to go to <laughs> Cambodia. <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing place. I was, it fundamentally changed me because I was like, oh, my God. I could never have reached these emotions unless I went there. And yeah. I'm talking to survivors of genocide. I was like, oh, yeah. my God, this is – there's nothing to complain about. That's yeah. what I kept on telling myself yeah. over and over and yeah. over again. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a tough place. Yeah. Um, I mean, you talk about the world of food now, and you, you, you were saying, uh, you know, chefs don't get along too well. And then you have someone like Jose, and then more and more chefs, Jose Andres uh, – who I bet you might win a Nobel Prize. <laughs> I bet so, okay, so let me tell you, Dave, right? So uh, first time I met Jose, right? Um, I forget what we were doing, something at the World Bank. And first time I met Jose, um, I asked him if he knew you, right? And so Jose was introduced, I forget what it was. He was introducing me somewhere, right? And it was very funny. Jose said, you know, when I first met Jim, I hated this guy, right? The first thing he asked me was if I knew Dave Chang. And everyone cracks up, right? He said, he said you know, he didn't realize that, you know, we, we're friends, yeah, but we want to kill each other in, in, in terms of being competitive, right? So uh, um, uh, I learned that from Jose, right? But he, and he's, I, I think what he's doing is just fantastic. I, you know, he, he really believes it. He believes that he's a guy who came from very humble beginnings and that he's now, you know, got this responsibility to feed more and more people in the world. Like we've been, we helped out with the California wildfires yeah. when we opened up and it dawned on me for all, I mean, at that time there were, you know, the, the earthquake in Mexico, there were all these, there's Puerto Rico. It was so many bad things going on. And somehow Jose's team at, uh, at uh, oh my God, World Central Kitchen. Yeah. They, they, they were setting up shop in <clears throat> uh, Western Los Angeles. And I was like, wait a second. And they're feeding all these firefighters and first responders. And I was like, holy shit. That's when it really dawned on me. If Jose's not here, these fucking heroes are not eating. <laughs> or, they're, was, or they're eating Burger they're King. They're eating Burger King, yeah. but like no one's really looking out for them. Yeah. Or 
the, the, the homes and people that were being displaced. I was like, and this is happening in America. I can't imagine what's going on outside of America. This is crazy. Yeah. Why is it that someone like Jose, I think I have the answer. I mean, I know because he's a chef. Is that one of the reasons why you left sort of the bureaucracy of the World Bank too? Like, I see the change that Jose does. And he's just like, fuck it. Let's just, we got to do this. We got to go as the crow flies and make shit happen. And it's unbelievable. I don't know if people understand. Like, he is just making it happen on a global level. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I I was, I was talking with Jose on a regular basis as he was, you know, up, you know, sort of increasing his engagement with these issues. It was amazing. And he, his big, one of his big issues is clean cook stoves, right? So clean cook stoves is an incredibly important issue because the number of, um, of uh, poor households that use these really dirty, you know, uh, uh, smoke filled, you know, uh, smoke producing cook stoves, and then they have terrible damage to their lungs as a result. It's a, it's a huge, it's billions of people who live like this. And so I met Jose because he kept, Banging on me about doing more on clean cook stoves, and and uh, and, and and we did, but not never as much as Jose wanted us to. And so, you know, instead of doing that, he's now going directly into it. And here's what I would say: I'd say, um, Jose obviously uh, is very sincere about this, and he he derives enormous satisfaction and meaning from doing it, right? And uh, uh, and and I'm so glad that he's doing it, but. The thing I say over and over to people is, uh, look, if 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 you think it's the thing that you should do and you're out there among people who need help and you're just pissed off and mad and like resentful all the time, just don't do it. Because right? like the one thing um, that, that, that the poor don't need, you know, is resentful and angry and unhappy do-gooders, right? So um, if, if, it, if it gives you great joy, go ahead and do it, right? And it, but... Uh, you know, um, one of the things I've learned, though, is that uh, that all this do-gooding is great, but often has a more of an impact on the do-gooders than on the population that you're you're talking can you, about. Can right? you elaborate? Because I see this <laughs> all the time. Yeah, in food not-for-profit uh, stuff. Yeah. So I, you know, what what I tell young young people, uh, especially you know Paul Farmer. Um, uh, so many people are inspired by him, and they say, "I want to be just like Paul." And what I say to them is, "Look." I tried it. I've seen you know dozens of other people try it, and very difficult to be like Paul Farmer to have like limitless energy to see patient after patient after patient with humility and compassion and warmth. I couldn't do it, right? and uh, that's why I went into doing you know other things on a larger scale. And um, uh, the the thing I the, the thing I say to people is, um, you know, if you go into this thinking that poor people are going to be both thankful and compliant, you're in for a very, very uh, abrupt awakening. Because these they, they, they are hungry. They are poor. They are um, uh, trampled down in, in so many different ways. Uh, they're more often going to be angry and, uh, uh, and resentful of you, right? So if you're going to do this, know why you're doing it and get serious about it. It's the back to the Dave Chang question, how much do you care? Right? If you're doing this because you want a brief moment of self-aggrandizement, then uh, and I, I just say, look, it, 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 all these things can help in a little way, right? But if it's about you and if it's about making yourself feel better for a little while, um, you know, either make it brief or, you know, or have some humility that, that, and, and, and admit that that's really what you're doing, right? So I would never tell people not to do that, right? 
but I just see a lot of people make themselves very unhappy uh, because they're doing something that they think they should do. Right. So what should, and I mean, there's other people than chefs, a lot of other people than chefs that listen to this, but a lot of chefs are asking like, Hey, what do I do? Cause Jose's inspired so many people and I can see a lot more outreach to charities and everything. And I just don't know how impactful it is, right? It, it, what's the best thing a chef could do for their community? So if you look at what Jose did, right? So, you know, um, Jose went to Haiti and like built kitchens and trained people. He re- before before he was on any CNN show or, you know, before he was celebrated, he was actually in Haiti after the earthquake, like really, really doing some serious stuff. And, um, you know, I saw pictures. I, I, you know, I've talked to him at length about it. He's really sincere about it. And I feel like Jose paid his dues in a really serious way, right? And so I would say to chefs, you know, find something like that. And if you, and, 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 but again, uh, uh, do not subject, you know, uh, a poor downtrodden sort of, you know, uh, 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 people who, who are undergoing terrible uh, uh, tragedies please don't subject them to your own unhappiness, you know, uh, find a way to find joy in it. Right. And Jose clearly has, but I think it's because, you know, uh, before anyone knew he was doing it, he was like in some of the poorest places doing great work. And I think it, 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 um, uh, it, it, uh, it made him, um, you know, just much more savvy about what it takes to be successful. So, so Dave, I, you know, for you, you, you know, and I've, I've given, I've, I've nagged you a bunch of times. Come on, Dave, you know, let's, let's figure out how to feed the world, right? And, um, uh, uh, and I, I don't know when you'll do it, right? But I, I personally have faith that you'll do it someday, right? And it may not be when you're doing, you right. know, two Netflix specials and opening up six restaurants, but that's okay, right? That's okay. Just uh, because you keep raising it with me, I'm, I'm, I'm very convinced that you're going to want to do something like this someday. And you just got to find the right time. For Jose, I think it was the right time. Is it wrong if I want to focus my efforts somewhere else? Because like, I think there's other things that need to like change. Not at all. So, you know, when I hear you get most passionate is about stuff like, you know, the way that, uh, that we manage fisheries or the way that we, you know, that we grow food. And, uh, so, what I would say is when I, when I hear you uh, talk out loud, and we've had this conversation many times about uh, the food system in the world, I would say, look, if you, can, if you can keep going with that and keep thinking about, so how are we going to feed everybody? How are we going to manage our food supply so that there's some chance uh, that everyone will have a good diet, will be fed well? You know, this is all, um, uh, th- this is all stuff that I think is just absolutely central to how we're going to survive in the future. I mean, you know, you, you brought Hugo into the world, man, and he is going to live in a world that's going to be much hotter in which, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, arable land is, it, 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 at, at a minimum, it's changing, right? I mean, the northern parts of, of, uh, of uh, Russia used to be all, you know, frozen, and now it's, you know, the, the, some of the most productive wheat fields in the world. It's going to shift in a way, uh, but the fundamental issue is going to be as we get to eight, nine, you know, 10 billion people on, on the planet, how are we going to feed everybody? Yeah. If you can come up with a way to approach that, your impact is so much larger than if you start, you know, a thousand kitchens uh, feeding people in poor communities. And so, uh, uh, you know, I, it, it's almost like because I've done this my whole life, 
right? I almost like have to give my blessing to people to say, hey, you don't have to do what Paul Farmer did. You don't have to do what Jose Andres did, right? You figure this problem out, oh my God, the impact will be huge. But I, I have a moral dilemma because it's like, maybe I'm part of the problem, right? And I actually, I'm at a point now where I think restaurants are completely unnecessary. <laughs> If people really care about it, people should stop going to restaurants then maybe. Yeah, I don't know, I, no, but I, well, it would be bad for you. You I, love you love eating. Because well, <laughs> we didn't talk about food yet. But but uh, um, uh, I, I have to say, you know, if you look at, at, at um, the future of like jobs, right? what, where are the jobs going to be? Well, you know, there's a lot of, um, lot of manufacturing jobs that are going to go away, right? So, so, you know, Bangladesh has the most efficient, lowest cost uh, garment industry in the world. But they're buying robots, man. You know, the and Bangladeshis are buying robots. They're called SoBots, <laughs> right? They're buying robots. And I'm not saying it's going to take it over quickly. I think maybe, the, you know, the garment industry might uh, have a, a run in Africa. I'm not sure, right? Um, but... Uh, you have to think, where are the jobs going to come from? And I think tourism, which, of course, includes restaurants, is going to be a big generator of jobs in the future. So, you know, tourism is about 11 12% of the global economy. And uh, tourism is a great uh, part of the economy because it's so job-rich. Manufacturing is not job-rich anymore, right? So, I, you know, uh, restaurants, I think, are really important. And I forget his name, David... From Brazil, right? Oh, yes. Heights or Hertz? I I can't remember, but he's doing amazing work. Amazing work. And and he's the one who did the work training chefs in poor communities, and it transformed the way they handle food. He he, he gave a talk at MAD one year. I think I think that's I think that's great, and and again, that's what David's doing, right? This doesn't have to be what you do. But but my my fear really is what you said. Uh, if robots are taking manufacturing jobs, uh, I don't know i know what's going to happen robots are going to take the culinary jobs hmm. that's just it's a guarantee <laughs> i mean 100 percent guarantee yeah every time i walk into an in and out and i see someone chopping the potatoes fresh for the french fries i'm like well that motion is pretty easy to replicate yeah and all this movement for like a sustainable living wage, all the, all these things that I am, everyone's passionate about. I'm like, well, they're also what's going to eliminate jobs. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually trying to grapple with what the future looks like when you have maybe three to four robots in a kitchen. Yeah. I don't, I don't even know what, I don't even know what to think, but I see it happening. You already have some restaurants that are automated and man. So, you know, in the, in the, in the history of, uh, of uh, you know uh, the industrial economy, right? There, the Luddites were an actual group of people, right? So, the Luddites were uh, the ones who formed uh, to try to uh, uh, take apart the, uh, the the weaving machines, right? So they they thought that uh, uh, these uh, machines that did the weaving for you were going to just wipe out all the jobs, and they literally went into factories and like you know damaged the big weaving machines. Of course, the Luddites were wrong, and what happened is with every new generation, you create a new set of jobs, right? So that that's what countries like the U.S. and the, the you know the, uh, the the most advanced European countries have to think about: is our workforce prepared for the jobs of the future? And and uh, 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 you know th- there are lots of different views on it. So Jack Ma, a friend of mine who who started Alibaba, Jack Jack says is uh, that you know my grandfather worked six days a week, um, uh, eighteen hours a day or sixteen hours a day, and he felt very busy. 
said, I work five days a week, eight hours a day, and I feel very busy. Said, My kids are going to work three days a week, three hours a day, and they're going to feel very busy, right? <laughs> and I, I usually say, Jack, your kids aren't going to have to work at all, man. <laughs> so, but, but, uh, but, you know, he feels that not only are robots going to take over muscle-based work, they're going to take over all intellectual work. Right? Mm. That they're going to be smart. I mean, think about radiology, the field of radiology, right? So it's already to the point where uh, artificial intelligence systems are better than the best radiologists uh, in terms of generating a list of what something could be. Because, you know, the best radiologist will have in, in, in his or her mind all the cases they've seen plus all the cases they've studied. Whereas an AI system will have all the cases that have ever, you know, been recorded and then we'll be able to compare what they're seeing on the current, uh, you know, uh, uh, X-ray or MRI or whatever. So already those kinds of intellectual activities are going to be taken over. But, you know, at first when I heard this stuff, I'd say, oh, my God, all the jobs are going to be gone. But what we're, what we're finding out is that um, there are a lot of jobs that will still ha require human beings. And that uh, more than anything else, there will likely be new jobs that, that are being created. So, you know, in, the, in a restaurant, you may not have the same chopping or dicing or whatever jobs. But there may be new jobs. You know, I, I, you could, you know, there, there are in the airports, right? You just go to your iPad and you, I don't know. I think people still will go for a wonderful experience with waiters and waitresses and, uh, and, and tablecloths and the like. I have a nod. But, but, but you know, I mean, you, you, again, tourism, right? Tourism is one of the great hopes for developing countries, that there's still beautiful places where people want to go. And, and uh, uh, if, if we can create a tourism industry, it brings in foreign exchange. It creates a lot of jobs. And, you know, Bali. Uh, have you ever been to Bali? I have not. So Bali used to be the poorest place, the poorest area in Indonesia. And then 35, 40 years ago, uh, the World Bank came in and built some basic infrastructure, right? Um, an airport, roads. Uh, uh, and then the foundations for a tourist industry, and now it's the most it's the it's the most well off uh, region in all of Indonesia, and they're now trying to recreate that in other other parts of uh, Indonesia. That's a great hope, and I I had this amazing experience of of meeting with third generation Bali natives, right? So their parents started out cleaning the hotel rooms. Uh, um, I mean, their grandparents cleaning the hotel rooms. Their, their parents had better jobs, managers. And they went off to school in Singapore and other parts, got their undergraduate degrees, and were doing, were trying to copy David Chang, man. They were, they were, they were trying to sell me, you know, the buns with, uh, with the pork belly. They, they were thinking about how to take, you know, the experience of Bali and turn it into, you know, real entrepreneurship. Um, so crazy to hear this. <laughs> I do have to, to sort of sum it up and get you out of here. You love Jiro and the the idea of sort of being a shokunin, right? The Japanese concept of like craft person, yeah. cra perfection through craft. And I don't know how the, it all work out, but the hope that I have where there will be a robust, you know, culinary job market is craft will have to come back. Yeah. I I completely agree. Craft will have to come back, and it will be applied to so many different kinds of things uh, in the world. And so, you know, I I I think I told you about this. Um, uh, when when I, uh, one of my very um, uh, you know uh, uh, close friends in the world of the you know the the, the minister of finance world was the uh, deputy prime minister and finance minister of Japan, uh, Mr. Taro Aso. Uh, he he was so kind to me and. Um, uh, it, he, I was sitting next to his wife very early on in my tenure, 
And she said, uh, so is there anything in Japan that's special that you'd like to do? And I said, yes, I'd like to eat at Jiro's, <laughs> Sukubayashi Jiro, right? And she cracked up. She said, really? That's, how do you know about Jiro? And I said, you know, I've seen this movie. It's amazing. I admire it so much. And so he said, oh, okay. So uh, the, the deputy prime minister is a good friend of Jiro. Let's go eat there, right? And so the next time I came back, we went and we walked in. And there was a nobody in the entire place, right? So when the deputy prime minister comes, it's just, you know, it, 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 they clear it out. And so normally, right, it's 20 pieces of sushi. You sit down, 20 minutes, you're gone. Under right? 30 minutes. <laughs> so we had sashimi, we had sake, we had, oh my gosh, and Jiro made the sushi himself, right? And I was, you know, through a translator having this conversation with him. And he, he, was, he was surprised that, you know, that, that someone like me, you know, so for him, I'm just this sort of global something, uh, uh, knew all these details about, about his life. And, and it gets back to the start of the conversation, Dave. It's, it's the start of why I wanted to meet you, right? Because I think what you brought to Momofuku, your determination, your like, uh, at the time, uh, and I'll use your words, you know, crazed commitment to a certain standard, right? Uh, that's what every, everybody should commit to. I, you know, don't, don't make yourself crazy and happy about it, right? But that that commitment to doing something in 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 the most outstanding possible way, I think that's what makes Korean golfers good. I think that's what makes your food good. I think that's what makes you know Jiro's food good, and it it's that level of commitment uh, that we have to nurture in everybody. And I think if you don't have healthcare, if you have a terrible education, um, you have every right to resent the world for not giving you the opportunity to be able to do whatever it is that you find uh, is your passion. And, and, and we have to prevent that by every, you know, uh, I just would say to everybody, pay attention. Don't think that just because, you know, Paul Farmer or Jose Andres do it a certain way, that's what you have to do. Pay attention to what's happening in the world. Climate change is real. These problems with water and food are very real. You know, the, 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 the task of giving everyone an opportunity, providing energy and, you know, transport, the basic things that people need uh, to be able to compete in the world, those things are real. Pay attention, do something that you really love, right? But, um, uh, you know, uh, it's time for you to be a citizen. Now, you know, I know there's new language, woke and all this stuff, and I, and, I, and, I, and I read this stuff and I listen to it. I don't know what these, you know, the young people are talking about, what that means. It's almost like it's, it's a fashion, right? It, it, and for me, it's never been a fashion because this stuff is hard, man. You know, to, to do what you did, face the reality of living in Cambodia, that stuff is hard. And, and, and if you feel like you're woke because you know all the language or you, you know, you, you, you're on top of things that you know, you're using the right words, man, that is so damn superficial, right? Dig into it. Find out you know, what the real issues of the world are and then attack it with the kind of energy and commitment that you've had. You give me too much credit, man. I don't even know what I do anymore. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I feel like we could talk forever. Uh, really appreciate you coming on, and let's get you fed. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. It's, uh, it, I'm so glad you're doing this. And I just want to say, on behalf of all the uh, Korean-American ajishis in the world, man, we're so proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> that should never have been uttered, but it was. Oh, my God. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Well, that was my conversation with Dr. Jim Kim, a very moving story, and I continue to learn about my identity 
and what it means to be a Korean American and why it's something I should take more seriously. And if it's something that you're just learning about or you're fascinated about, I think there's a lot more information out there. But follow Dr. Jim Kim because he really sets a template for a lot of us to follow. Thank you again, Dr. Kim. Um, Want to get to an Ask Dave at MajorDomaMedia.com question. What is the full story about your thoughts on Jeremy Lin and Linsanity by Brian Daniel? You know, I, I, I really do say this to people. They say, what is the happiest moments of your life? And besides my marriage to my wife and the birth of my son, I really say that one of the best moments is, is living in New York during Linsanity. Growing up, this whole idea of identity was something that I didn't even know what that meant. When your whole world is representation is represented through bad guys on film, right? You're always the computer expert or the guy that builds bombs and the karate villain or whatever. Like all representation of Asian Americans have almost always been bad. And it's not something that we ever saw in sports. I remember as a kid when I was probably like nine years old when Michael Chang won the French Open. And my parents wept. I really remember that because I couldn't understand what was going on until I was like, oh, he's a tiny Asian guy that just beat, I think it was Becker. I can't remember. And we watched that. It was one day we actually didn't go to church in that morning. I really remember that. I was like, oh my God, we were late because they, it was like six or seven hours ahead of time. And that was probably the only other time. And there were other golfers, like Jumbo Ozaki was one of my favorite golfers growing up. Because not only did he have a sick name, Jumbo, he was a really good golfer and he played Humna, which is like a Japanese driver. And I wanted to play all that stuff. I want to play all the, the ball and the, like, I think he played a Bridgestone ball and I wanted to have his graphite driver that he played with. Anything Jumbo Ozaki used, I wanted to use simply because I was like, this guy is Asian and I want to be exactly like him. So when Linsanity happened, it was the first time I'd ever seen someone in the major sports, right? Where it's not speed skating, badminton, something like that. Like we've never had, I guess that's not true. We had Eugene Chung. I know all the shit. He, I think it was like 1992 or 93. He was drafted 13th by the New England Patriots. He's an offensive lineman out of Virginia Tech, like a giant man, six foot six, 300 pounds. And he had like a four year career in the NFL. Wound up, I think, finishing out with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Why I remember this shit, I don't know. And I was a huge fan of Eugene Chung. It was the first time I ever rooted for an offensive lineman that wasn't the Washington Redskins Hogs. We had some people play baseball. There was a Korean hockey player on the Pittsburgh Penguins. I can't remember his name. And obviously, Hideki Nomo with his weird windup. Huge fan of Hideki Nomo. You saw this trickle in, but you never really saw it in football, and you certainly as hell never saw it in basketball. We had some Asian players. There was a, a player on Wang ZZ, and you had another like seven foot six Korean guy, but mostly they were like Yao Ming, just over seven feet three, just gargantuan monsters. And while Yao was incredibly skilled, and that's what made him one of the best players, for the most part, I feel like Asian basketball players were seen as like freaks of nature. And to me, because of not having a helmet on and because it's one of the reasons why basketball is so beloved is because you can see the caricature and the animation of players' faces and growing up watching Michael Jordan and the Bulls and the kind of joy that people gave, right? Michael Jordan 
being African American and everyone loving him. I was like, wow, at an early age, I remember this would be fucking amazing if there was an Asian kid that could play basketball and not be seven foot six. Nothing wrong with that. I love Yao. But it's not something that people could relate to, particularly an Asian kid. So, of course, I knew that Jeremy Lin was on the Golden State Warriors and he was undrafted and he was at Harvard because I follow sports pretty religiously. And I don't remember him getting picked up by the New York Knicks on a 10-day um, I mean, I, I think it was in Houston, and then he got cut, and then he wound up on the Knicks. And this is probably six, seven years ago now. And that first game, I think it was against Brooklyn. I just remember hearing that there's a Chinese guy, a Taiwanese guy, and he just scored like 20 points in like 18 minutes or something like that. And I was like, that's got to be a mistake. That cannot be true. And I saw the highlights, and I was like, oh, my God. This guy is, looks like just like a Taiwanese kid that this must be a mistake. I had never seen anything like this before. He's actually in the starting lineup. What the fuck? And D'Antoni was coaching. You had Carmelo, you had Landry Fields, you had Novak. It was a fun team. And I was able to go to two games and it was just the most joyous thing I've ever seen. I've been to the garden several times over my lifetime and I had never seen the garden in that kind of frenzy. And it was a beautiful thing to see all kinds of skin color, white, black, Asian, brown. Everyone was just in a state of euphoria because this six foot two kid from Harvard sleeping on Landry Fields couch was lighting up the NBA. And it felt like floating on air. I'll be honest. I had never felt that much joy in my life just by watching something. And then everyone was like watching Jeremy Lin. And walking through New York City, every bar and every TV, I'll never forget this. They had Knicks games on and people were congregating to watch this kid play. It was a phenomenon that I had never seen. It brought me so much happiness to see the next level of how Asian kids could be accepted in mainstream America. And when that Miami Heat game happened and they shut him down, that's when I was like, oh, the backlash is happening. I think a lot of the players in the NBA did not want to see him sort of win. And I think Kobe Bryant was pissed that he beat the Lakers and all these things. And I think that was a really hard struggle. And I, I, I've met Jeremy over the years. I consider him a friend. We have a lot of mutual friends. And I felt really sad that like that kind of pressure, that kind of weight, that, that kind of expectation to constantly be the best is just an impossible burden to carry. And it became less about basketball and more about him leading the charge of what it's like to be an Asian American man, quite frankly. And I've had a lot of thoughts. I've been critical of a lot of things, but at the end of the day, even though I, I can be upset about certain things, I've been incredibly supportive of what he's done because, I mean, he instantly became an icon for anyone that was Asian. And I really don't know what that would be like. I wonder if Jeremy's career would have been more successful had he uh, not been like three or four, not the, like the first one, like an Asian American kid, you know? And then when he got traded to Houston, I was so sad. And then, you know what? Like, here's the thing. Jeremy's career has had a long lasting impact. He's also made like 60, $70 million. And I know that he wants to continue to still play. And if he doesn't make 
another dollar in the NBA. He should hold his head up high because he's done something absolutely remarkable. I really wish that he gets there, but it's also like, you know, you could say a lot of coulda, shoulda, woulda, but I don't know what it's like to be Jeremy Lin. I don't know what it's like to have the expectations to be a perfect Christian son, to be a Taiwanese son. Like, he didn't stray from his path. And I think that that deserves a lot of credit because it could have easily, like if I was in a situation, God, I don't know if I would have kept my shit together. And, you know, I thought a lot about it. It's like when he cried doing his Taiwanese press conference about maybe the NBA moving on from him. I don't know. At first I, I want to be as transparent as possible, even on this podcast. And when he was crying, I was first like, don't do that, man. We got to show the world that we're tough. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, it's who he is. And he's never shied away from being who Jeremy Lin is, both good and the bad, because we're all human. And I hope that he gets another chance. And if he doesn't, Jeremy, hold your head up high. You want an NBA ring with the Toronto Raptors. You made a ton of money. And um, thank you. That's what I'll say. I say thank you for giving me some of the best moments of my life and not just to myself, to a lot of other people. I could easily talk an hour about Jeremy Lin because it was that monumental for my life. Anyway, it's a lot of thoughts, Brian. Thank you for that question. I will shut up now. Give us five stars however you rate this podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. Stay tuned next week. Thank you so much, everyone. Peace. Peace.